Hey everybody, welcome to the Single Tracks Podcast. My name is Jeff, and today I'm going to be talking with Todd Branham. Todd lives, works, and plays in the Pisgah National Forest, North Carolina, as a professional trail builder. He also directs the Pisgah Stage Race, which is a five-day fully supported mountain bike race that showcases 140 miles of the best single track in the forest. Thanks for joining us, Todd. Thanks for having me, Jeff. It's great to be here. Well, I want to start by asking you, what makes Pisgah National Forest so special, in your opinion? Well, Pisgah is definitely a unique place. Um, and just dissecting where I live in Transylvania County here alone, it's home of the first forestry school in America, which is pretty cool. That's pretty much the way the Forest Service managed and run in America today was formed right here in western North Carolina. Um, we have more waterfalls than any other county in the United States, 200 miles of streams and over 1,000 miles of trails. Again, just in our county section of the Pisgah National Forest. So playing here is pretty spectacular. Yeah, that's awesome. How long have you lived in the area? I've been here 21 years now. Okay, cool. And and what, I mean, what drew you to the forest? Was it was it the forest itself or did you just kind of land there by accident? Uh, it was. I, I, I grew up in South Carolina, which is only a two-hour drive up to the mountains. And of course, mountain biking, this is where I came and I played and fell in love with it immediately and tried to figure out, well, how can I place myself there? Yeah. Yeah. That's really cool. So, you know, like you said, the forest is massive and there are just so many trails to choose from. And Pisgah, you know, I mean, it has a reputation now, national, probably even international in terms of the mountain biking that's there. So since you've been around for a long time and I imagine you've, you've ridden pretty much everywhere, what, in your opinion, are sort of the must rides in the forest? Well, there are so many choices. Uh, my favorites, um, you know, and you have to kind of separate it because Pisgah is very raw and hard and there's certainly different levels mm -hmm. um, of Pisgah. But I'd say, you know, for most, I'd say the Avery Creek Trail is definitely a, a must. Butter Gap has gotten a really good Sycamore Cove uh, right at the entrance of the forest. Those are some just great, good trails. Um, and then if you're an expert, of course, Bennett Gap and Pilot Rock are certainly on the list of downhills that you need to try when you come to Pisgah. Yeah. Well, I noticed you didn't mention Black Mountain. Is that is that one of them that's up there too and just didn't make the cut? Or do you do you have some you got some beef against Black Mountain? Well, you know, Black Mountain's a long trail. And again, there's sections of it. I have some beef with the top part. I really don't <laughs> like it's 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 eroded. Um, a lot of people think, no, that's technical. And I'm like, man, that that's erosion. There's, there's right. a fine line between erosion and technical, but unfortunately that's erosion. The bottom jam up, mm -hmm. the one that comes into the very bottom near the ranger station jam up the stuff that goes over the top of Clawhammer road that links into club gap. Awesome. The top part to me, honestly, the reward used to be the downhill for hiking up and the cliffs were cool and all. The the reward just doesn't, you know, it's not there for me anymore for all that, that hiking. Yeah. That's interesting. The downhill, I seem to be hiking too. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting you say that, you know, I have sort of the same opinion about erosion versus technical and, you know, a lot of people, they, they equate like roots or, you know, gullies or things with being technical, but yeah, sometimes it's just annoying to me or, or yeah, just, it's ugly. Well, they look very similar. You know, and, and if you're around it enough, you'll know 
that's technical and that that's technical too, but it's technical due to erosion. <laughs> right. And, and the technical that's built to stay stays. The erosion changes every time you approach that area. That's how you can tell the difference. Yeah. And that's, but I guess that's what some people like about it. You know, they like the challenge of not really knowing what's going to be there and what it's going to look like the next time that they ride it. And then someday they come and it's not there anymore. <laughs> right. And this is how the Grand Canyon was formed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's great. Yeah. And we're going to get into more of the trail building stuff because I'm really interested to learn more about that from you as well. But what are some of uh, kind of the like off the radar trails in Pisgah National Forest that most mountain bike visitors are never going to see? This is really easy to overlook because currently they are inventoried on the map as Forest Service roads. Oh, okay. So you would not be intrigued to actually use some of these uh, that I'll give you real quick um, to ride. So in the popular fish hatchery area, just above the popular Cove Creek Trail and Daniel Ridge Trail, there's Mm -hmm. a Forest Service road called 225. Okay. It it's a great connector to cut off all the open Forest Service roads, such as four seventy five A and B, just as a connector to stay on trail. And again, if you look at this on the map, it appears to be a Forest Service road, but that's not true. It's become single track over the years and it's very, very nice. Oh, cool. Another one that's really cool that not a lot of people use at all just because of the location. Everybody goes up the Forest Service Road 225 to get to the named Farlow Gap. Mm-hmm. No one goes straight and stays on 140A to 5003, which is called Pilot Mountain. Huh. And it comes right back around to the gap where you started to climb the up to Farlow Glacier Gap. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's a great trail, very backcountry, very rugged. And again, if you look at it on a map, it looks like a forest service road. Why would you want to ride that? Right. It's single track. It's very cool. Some of our events have looked at putting people on these routes just to kind of show you, hey, there is other stuff out there that's really good. Mm -hmm. And as everybody explores the more popular trails, it's nice to have events push push in a different way. Yeah, that's cool. I know I've, I've stared at the maps of the forest a bunch of times and I've seen a number of trails. I mean, for one, there's a, a number of like seasonal trails that are only open to bikes certain parts of the year. And I imagine those aren't super well-traveled. And then there are others that seem to just kind of like dead end and they're like at the edges of the forest. Are any of those worth checking out or are they just so far out there that, that nobody really bothers with them? If you like to explore, I mean, there's always cool wildlife because not a lot of people get in there. There's cool trees, streams, and stuff that you'll see, but out and backs aren't my favorite, but I've explored them all. Um, There is some cool ones. There's one that if you go up Forest Service 477, I can't think of the name of the Forest Service Road offhand, but again, if you look at it, it looks like a Forest Service Road. Mm -hmm. Connects from Forest Service 477 just below the entrance of Bennett Gap over to the right parallels goes across the mountain there and connects over to Clawhammer road okay not a lot of people use that probably some trees down in there but you know a great way to explore something new get across the forest old forest service extraction roads very cool stuff in there yeah that's that's good tips 
So you're really well known for building mountain bike trails all over the world and uh, certainly in the Southeast through your company, Long Cane Trails. How did you get into the business, so to speak? Uh, starting off just volunteering here in the Pisgah National Forest, it was uh, one way that I could directly impact this particular forest I was operating out of doing my events um, and give back to the forest at the time. So I got started in that and met a couple of, at the time, professional trail builders that were popping up all around me. Had a good buddy down in South Carolina that owned a, ca- a trail a company called Long Cane Trails and worked with him a little bit. And the opportunity came around to actually buy into the company. So today I'm 50% owner with my buddy Bill Victor that lives down in Aiken, South Carolina. Mm -hmm. And Long Cane Trails is in their 18th year. And what's cool is when I first got into trail building, all the work was in South Carolina. And and my fear was, God, I don't want to be traveling all the time. But I looked around me and said, there's so many trails around here. There's got to be work up here. Mm Mm-hmm. And today we do most of our work in North Carolina, in Western North Carolina, actually. Yeah. What are some of the projects that you guys have worked on that people would know? I know FATS, was that one of the early ones in South Carolina? FATS is a is a real good one for us. That's kind of our calling card and put kind of long cane trails where we're at today. Yeah. For sure. That's a good one. There's a good one just off the highway in Hartwell, Georgia called Payne's Creek. Right. That one we built. That one's a real popular trail as well. We've done some stuff up towards the Brevard area, entrance trail that goes into the National Forest that connects downtown Brevard to the forest. It's called Bracken Preserve. Mm -hmm. Really popular trail. Yeah. Yeah. I've ridden all three of those. And yeah, every one of those is great. And it's interesting when you look at trail builders and the work that they do, it's like you can, you can see kind of the character that like flows between the, the trails, even though the terrain is maybe a little bit different. Right. But yeah. There's always like that signature stamp on the trails and all three of those are, are great. And just trails that you're riding and they're not the kind of trails where you're like dreading parts of them cause it's going to climb too much or it's going to, you know, not flow well, like, yeah, the, those trails are, are definitely some of my favorites in each of those areas. That's awesome. And that's what we like to hear. We like to hear it's the experience that we deliver to you, not just a trail system. Oh, we got 30 miles of trail. It's the it's the excitement, that experience from the car back to the car that's important to us as a professional trail builder. Yeah, and Bracken is an interesting one, too, because it is right up against the edge of the Pisgah National Forest where you know, the, the flavor of trails is, is very different. I mean, the people who are coming to Pisgah are expecting that really raw sort of old school trail experience for the most part. And they're going to find these well-built machine cut trails that are, they're going to flow a little bit better and maybe reach kind of a different audience or, or maybe the same audience, but on a different day. Yeah, they definitely do. They're they're more of a, a stepping stone to become an expert. Um, they're definitely more beginner friendly trails. But if you push anything and throw speed to it, things get technical real quick. Right. Yeah. That's that's what's great about those kinds of trails. So, what what's your favorite part of building a new trail? I would have to say the design part of it. Uh, I get very very uh, high end satisfaction out of that. The uh, design work is is really special uh, because you're pretty much taking a, a piece of forest that's a blank canvas, if you will, and you're, you're designing your, 
your flags that you're laying out that that you will eventually use the machine or the hand to build and follow this flag line that you're designing and you're laying out a trail on the side of a mountain. I like to think of that as my paintbrush. Yeah. And the forest is my canvas and I'm painting this beautiful connectivity experience again from A to Z for the customer that at the end of the day, all I can really show them is this map that's, you know, hey, this is where I'm going to put the trail. And I know in my heart what this trail is going to deliver at the end experience. But you can't quite, you know, get it out right now. And then at the end, when it all unfolds, you get to see the owner walk the trail or the users, you, you know, use the trail. And it's just magnificent. And, and they're blown away. And they're like, this is unbelievable. You finally get to unveil that piece of masterpiece that you drew way back in a design. So it's very fulfilling. Yeah. Well, and, and how does that start? I mean, do you start with like a map of the area and you kind of trace it out or, or do you not even do that? Would you, would you walk the land first and kind of get a sense for where the trail needs to go? Yeah. So the first step I do is I walk the land to do a couple of things, familiarize myself with the boundaries of the land. We don't want to build trail outside of a boundary. Mm-hmm. And then I also want to familiarize myself with any cool features that I want to link the trail to on the property, such as waterfalls, streams, cool trees, big trees, unique trees, rock outcroppings, just anything, vistas that that's a real, you know, point of interest that I might impossibly cool could sustainably link this trail to. Mm-hmm. Once I wrap my head around that, that's when I start flagging it. Okay. How I mean, how long would that take then to sort of familiarize yourself? I imagine, especially if it's a multi-mile trail system, that's a lot of tromping through the woods, isn't it? It is, but you know, the land dictates where the trail goes. You can't manipulate that if you want to make a sustainable trail. So it flows, you know, it's got a flow to it. And as long as you're going and you're bouncing off the boundaries of the property, you can run it as long as you can and you have to rise or you have to, you know, drop whatever you, whatever the case needs to be to get to where you want to go. You just follow the land and you, you know, looking at maps and putting it all together, you kind of figure out with the contours where you want to go and how to link it around. And at the same time, it's important to keep in mind, you know, to try to be respectful to the owner that's paying for it to keep the price down, not throw a thousand bridges in there and right. huge uh, sudden turns where you need a big old berm, you know, and things like that, you know, so to yeah. keep it re- respectful because in the end we want more trails built. Mm-hmm. Well, it seems like to build great trails, trails that people enjoy riding, you need to be a rider yourself. So what types of trails do you like to ride personally? I like to ride really, uh, you know, two totally different types of trails. I love the flow trails that we build with the machines. I really love the Pisgah raw, I call it half track <laughs> that we have here. I mean, it, it's not even single track. So I like to have it all. You know, I, I, I consider myself an expert rider and riding on trails that are machine cut four foot wide. Uh, again, I just, I hit the gas, man, and it becomes technical real fast and it's fun. And I grew up riding BMX. So I kind of like that pumpy flowy feel Mm -hmm. Um, i like the dependability that when you build uh, a sustainable trail you can kind of rely on when it rains on a tuesday it'll be dry by thursday yeah kind of thing you know there's a dependability to it it's gonna stay dry Um, people are gonna stay off I, i i like the feel of the flow trails probably the best yeah 
Well, as a trail builder, a professional trail builder at that, do you have many opportunities to build that sort of half track style of trail or is most of what's being done flow trails? Most is flow trails because uh, that is, if you look at the market segment of riders, let's say in the United States as a whole, that's what we need. We need more intermediate beginner trails to grow the sport. Yeah. There's plenty of raw trails out there. There's plenty of old trails that seem technical because they're eroded mm-hmm. uh, that need a little work that we're going to let go, you know, and let it, ah, oh, that's cool. It's not dangerous yet to so let it go. But <laughs> there, there's so much of that. But to grow the sport of, of mountain biking, you're going to need some beginner, intermediate. And again, you know, if you throw steepness in there, you throw hit like Bracken, Bracken, is machine built, but man, it's 1800 feet from the bottom to the top. So you got to have an engine to actually get up there. Right. If you wait and give it time, all that material and that rock, you, you'll see again, mm-hmm. it will become technical in time. Yeah. So, I mean, that kind of leads to this question and maybe you sort of already answered it, but you know, in recent years, there has been pushback from certain groups of riders against machine cut and flow trails, particularly, I guess you would hear this from the experienced riders. What do you say to those folks? I mean, is, is it enough to say, well, this is about growing the sport or, or is there other stuff going on? No, I mean, I think they just, they're not tuned enough to understand the full picture. I think that, you know, as a trail builder, I would love to build the rawest, chunkiest (laughs) trail out there, half track for you guys, but let's just pull that pull back and financially talk about what that would take. All right. I mean, that that is the highest cost trail because you'd build it by hand and it would be technical. But again, pulling back in the inventory of the Forest Service and state parks, there's a check in that box all day long where I live. Mm-hmm. Where there's no checks and balances is in the fact that we have intermediate trails or beginner trails. Right. Um, so that's where they're going to throw their money at. They're also going to throw it at, at patching up some of the trails we have now. But, you know, this is an interesting concept because, again, I'm an, I'm an expert rider. I hang around people that like that raw stuff. I like that half-track raw stuff. Mm-hmm. So how do I keep building all this machine-built <laughs> stuff and live with it myself, right? <laughs> The, the, the thing is, it's an educational process. And what you have to understand, first and foremost, is that good things come in time. And nothing that any of us got that we really appreciate, we got easy or came quick. And that's the same for trails. Mm-hmm. It takes time for these trails to mature. We're not moving material off the hill. We're just covering it up per the payees want. That's what they, that's what they desire. So, you know, as you've always heard, the customer's always right. <laughs> well, again, I go back. I would love to be building raw, gnarly single track, but that's not what's in our order to build. We have to do what the customer wants. And as a whole, they want something that's maintainable, safe. And something that, yeah, a lot of people can use. Yeah, and I think they understand the fact that, you know, that, that if if you want something technical, there's a lot of options out there. But just go faster. Speed, 120 miles an hour down a straight highway in your car is very technical. <laughs> <laughs> very, very technical. So speed with anything makes things exciting. And, you know, I think that it, with a proper laid out trail, the flow, you know, you're, you're we're taking into consideration sight lines where you don't run into one another somebody coming the other way so you can open it up Mm -hmm. you should be able to open it up 
But, you know, I, I go back to that analogy. I mean, I think that people want things today and they want it now and they don't understand the processes of trail. We're not getting rid of the material. We're just covering it up. Yeah. In time, it'll come back. I live in an area that's pretty easy to answer this question. I ask when, when I get approached with this question and people know Pisgah, it's an easy conversation for me, Jeff. I ask them one question, what's your favorite trail in Pisgah? <laughs> and they immediately will more than likely go far low gap. And I look at them with a smile and I go, well, do you I close your eyes? Can you imagine that beautiful, rocky, chunky trail with all those drops today? Can you imagine that at one point, historically, there was a narrow grade gauge railroad on that trail. <laughs> and they look at me and I go, that's right. And then it just got ripped up and nature took the trail back over and look at what we have today. Huh. Yeah. And that shows you if you're patient and you give nature a chance to recover, all that material comes back out and shows its face again and you end up with that. Yeah. And what's interesting is there's a case study right here in Brevard, and we've already talked about it. It's called Bracken Mountain. Jeff, when we built that trail, it was smooth as a baby's butt. <laughs> I could throw a piece of bologna on that on that ground and put it on a piece of bread, and there wouldn't be any dirt on the bologna. It was so clean. <laughs> it was amazing. And, you know, half of my friends were like, oh, great, machine-built flow track, wah, wah, wah. Well, let's fast forward to today's a mere today, a mere five years later. Mm-hmm. Man, there's roots, rocks, chunky coming up underneath the ground. So anybody that lives here that experienced the beginning of Bracken has an advantage in this case study I'm talking about of looking at it and go, you know, Tom knows what he's talking about. That is true. <laughs> right. If you just give things time, they become very well. And you know what? He's right also. Anything that's worth a crap in life didn't come easy and it didn't come quick. You have to be patient with trails. Yeah. And that's, you know, to your point too about some of those trails you were saying uh, that people overlook in Pisgah. A lot of them are, they're still marked as roads. I mean, they started out as roads and now they're single track. That's a lot of fun to ride. And it makes me think too of uh, one of the trail systems we have here in Georgia, Bull Mountain, and about halfway up this big single track climb, there's this old like rusted out truck and everybody loves to stop there and, and look at it and be like, wow, how did, how did this truck get up here? And it's like, well, cause this used to be a road. I mean, it, it was a road and now it's single track. Yeah. It's hard to imagine because you have to stand back and look at the trail and look at the prism in which the trail is on and you'll see the old road cut. Mm-hmm. And go, oh, I see it. The trail is actually two feet wide, but it's on a flat surface of now about four or five feet. Yeah. And you can see that really well in Colorado, old mining roads, where you just, you know, like Breckenridge is a great example. You've got a bunch of trails that go all over the place. They're old mining roads. It's single track, but because there's no trees there, like the East Coast, you can see this is an old road that now is single track. Yeah. Because you can clearly see the road. Right. Yeah, that's fascinating. So as you were saying, you know, nothing worth doing comes easily or, you know, good things take time. So what what's sort of the biggest challenge when it comes to building mountain bike trails? It's similar to, to the last question. I think educating the public on what we're doing, why we're doing what, what we're doing, and how, and how we're going to fix the problems that, that are currently there that they don't see. 
and you're not really involved necessarily in the like planning stage in the stage of someone identifies a piece of property and says, all right, how are we going to get approvals? How are we going to get funding that? I mean, to me, that part takes the longest time. And personally, it seems to be the most frustrating part. No, we, we're, we're all, we're hands deep in that. We, we uh, do a lot of private projects and, you know, we've been doing this for a long time. So we know the process very well, all the way down to getting grants mm-hmm. down to how much land it would take for you to get a conservation easement tax break mm. on how many, like how many miles of trail it would take on your land. Uh, we're well covered in all that. And in fact, right now we're working with several clients from the ground up, private landowners that have no idea of the process. How do we do this? What do we need? What kind of permits do we need? How do you figure out my boundaries? The whole nine yards. And we come in and we start from scratch and give you an entire master plan. Yeah. That's another thing that's interesting to me, the rise of these private mountain bike trails. I mean, are these like individuals who have a lot of family land and they they just want to build some trails for their own use or... Or are these also more like public use situations? It's it's a little mix of both. I'd say it more leans into, believe it or not, just private use. Just my buddies are coming up this weekend and, you know, I've got 15 miles of mountain bike trails on my land. Wow. That we can just go play in. And, you know, that comes along with a five and a half million dollar home on the house on the hill. But, but, but yeah, it, it's pretty popular. And then I think even... You know, in our world, talking of trails, I mean, even something on a two-acre lot that links you to a yoga pad up on a platform <laughs> that you want, we do that. Yeah. Uh, a, a trail that's in, you know, four acres that just goes around the border of your yard, we do that. We do a lot of work in western North Carolina at camps. There's a ton of camps around here, so... Trails and camps go hand in hand, and, you know, they, they see the value of putting trails, which keeps activities for the camp on the campus. Yeah. So does Long Cane do much work? I know, obviously, you build a lot of new trails. Is there a lot of work in maintaining or repairing existing trails? There is, because, you know, you've got to rework um, some of the stuff that's just been kind of done wrong. I, I think that most of it that we do, though, I'd say about 90% of it is building new trails. So just a little bit of it is refurbishing old trails. I think that what you've seen, Jeff, is in the past couple of years, EMBA has formed SORBA, and SORBA's gotten chapters everywhere. They've got a relationship, a strong relationship with the Forest Service. Now you're seeing volunteers run machinery, the same machinery we use. Mm-hmm. They're not as good as we are. They can't get it <laughs> in the places that we that we can get them. They can't maybe even build new trail, but guess what they can do? They can maintain old trails with it. Right. And, and that is very valuable to the Forest Service or state parks, seeing how 100% of the maintenance is done by volunteerism. You know, when you see what you can do with a machine versus a hand tool, it's a no-brainer. Yeah. And so if you get trained, and, and let me tell you, there's a lot of training that goes along. There's a lot of signing papers, uh, certifications to be able to run a machine as a volunteer in the National Forest. But it's popping up left and right, and it's cool to see because that takes care of most of the issues of maintaining the old trails. Yeah, I mean, it just seems like with the explosion and the number of new trails being built that at some point, 
there's going to be a lot more maintenance work and maybe it's not, you know, in the first few years, but maybe 10 years down the road, we're going to be seeing a lot, a lot more of that needing to be done. Yeah, you will. And I think that's part of the reason why, you know, you'll see in Pisgah here, you won't see many new trails pop up and people always go, well, why don't we go here? Why don't we go there? How about a new trail? Mm -hmm. We as volunteers can't maintain the amount of trails that we have in inventory in the Pisgah National Forest. Yeah. So they won't they won't spend any money on new trails until we can show we have a force to keep up with what we currently have. Yeah. That's that makes a lot of sense. So what would you say is sort of the most useful hand tool for building or finishing trail? Like if somebody's an aspiring trail builder, what's what's the first tool they could have? I think the McLeod is the best all around tool. Um, it comes from a firefighting background, fire tool. It's been adopted into trail building. Uh, a lot of, like a lot of the tools in trail building, they come from forestry, firefighting, that kind of a background. But what a McLeod is, is basically an 11 inch two sided rake, if you will. It's a metal rake on one side. It comes down, it's flat. And it, on one side, it's just kind of a flat cutting tool, like a hoe. Yeah. The other side is a metal pronged rake. And believe it or not, nowadays you can get it at most Home Depots for under 55 bucks. Oh, wow. Yeah, Home Depot. I was like, wow, they have McLeods now. Yeah, I looked for them there for years. And actually, I just got one for Christmas. Leah got me one. And I think she had ordered it online. But yeah, I got my McLeod now. Yeah, forestry suppliers is typically where we, we go for all the, you know, that's where we had to go way back in the day that had our trail building tools Mm -hmm. but now it's become so popularized i mean that particular tool it you know it it works good for almost anything works great around the house um so i mean yeah it's it's a great tool but that you can build uh you could go out and build yourself some hand-built single track in your yard with that you can finish trail we use them all the time you can cut roots they're unique cool little tool yeah. Yeah. And you can, you can rake with them, like you said, and you can, you can tamp too, I guess, if you have kind of loose, loose soil. Yeah. Now some of them, and you'll have to see, uh, what you'll see is like the one at Home Depot has a big half inch nut on the backside that holds it all together. So tamping, you leave a little mark. <laughs> yeah. If you want the real one, it's about 90 bucks and they won't have the nut on it. Oh, cool. You know, and then you can get a nice flat stamp to the ground. Yeah. Cool. So I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about uh, racing and the the events that you put on in the Pisgah area each year. So the Pisgah stage race is one that I think a lot of people know, and it's in the 11th year now. So describe sort of the vibe at that event, like what it's all about. It's become very international and family oriented. It's very cool to see the transformation of it. Last year, we had 14 countries and the vibe was alive. I mean, it was like, (laughs) wow, because... You know, we're limited it to 200 people. So with 200 people and six dinners, five days of racing, you're kind of forced to get to know new people. Yeah. And, and it's really cool at the end, the amount of people um, that you'll end up being friends with. And for me as a race director, I get to know almost all 200, mm-hmm. which, which is very unique. I don't have any other race like that. So it becomes like a family event. And I think that's the unique piece of the stage race it's it's it, it's really you get to know each other very well through the week unlike any other 
one day event or two day event that I've been to, you just, again, you're forced to sit at dinner with people that you don't know. And, you know, and and it's interesting, you'll hear them speaking a different language and they'll look at you and they go, Hey man, what's going on? You're like, (laughs) Oh, cool. You do speak English because I don't speak French. Right. (laughs) So, um, it's cool. It's a cool experience, you know, it's, uh, and it makes you feel good about yourself. It's kind of, a it's kind of a red carpet event for you as well. You know, it's all the bells and whistles. So you're like, man, this is, I I feel good that I can actually participate in something like this. Yeah. Well, I mean, how many people show up to actually race it versus they've heard about Pisgah and, you know, this is a fun way to experience all of that. I think 15% of the people can actually race it. (laughs) Yeah. And then there's, you know, then there's another 15% that, got themselves in a little over their head and they're just really surviving, but they can pull it out. And then the others, you know, I think the key to stage racing is discipline and you've got to, you know, pack up your machismo and put it away and say, Hey man, I can only race at 75%, 80% of my, of my total effort, or I'm not going to finish this. I'm going to blow my fuse. Yeah. And if you can learn to, to pack that in, into yourself, it's totally doable. Mm -hmm. You just can't see your buddy that usually rides behind you take away in front of you and go, I'm going to go get him. (laughs) You you, you can't do that. You can't look at your heart rate and go, I could do more. You got to just pipe down and go a little easier. And it's amazing if you just slow down, your body gets that reaping benefit of I want more, I want Mm -hmm. And you can push yourself to limits you never thought you could. Yeah. I mean, do you think, though, or do some people do it, though, just to kind of tour it? I mean, is there like a group at the back that's doing that while other people are pushing themselves, hopefully not too hard? Absolutely. Because if you look up a, a guided tour, I mean, this is one way I do sell the stage races. If you look up a guided tour, you get five guys coming in from Brazil. They're probably going to take you on, you know, really cool routes, the right way to do it. But you're going to be waiting on my slow ass at every single corner, you know, and then you're going to get to the next one and be waiting on me again. And then be like, man, where the stage race, it's cool to see what happens. They all come out in the same car and they high five each other. And they're like, man, I'll see you at the finish line. Mm-hmm. And they do their own thing at their own rate. And then they come back and they sit down in what we call the recovery zone with recovery drinks and massages and all this stuff. And they hang out and they cheer their buddies on and then when the last guy comes in, they just get in their car and they go back to the hotel room. And then we see them later at night at dinner. It's a cool way to hang out and and experience the best trails in Pisgah the best way. Yeah. Like their best direction. Yeah, that's great. That's a really great way to put it. So I imagine putting on a, a big event like Pisgah Stage Race is a lot of work and probably not a lot of reward, at least financially, I'm guessing. So wh- why do you do it? Why do you put on races like this and choose to let other people have all the fun? Well, uh, that's a good question, you know, and I think that uh, it is a financial beast, uh, but the payoff comes in a different form, and it comes in a community-building form. Bringing folks in from all over the world to ride the trails that are in my backyard are very satisfying. And, uh, you know, every year, people from around the world come to a special place that, to me, in Western North Carolina, and to see the smiles the thank yous, you know, the thrills and the experiences, man, those are real. Yeah. That's real stuff. And seeing this among the faces of the riders and the people, even the visitors, you know, because I said it it was become a family thing. 
even the families that aren't racing, Jeff, that come in, they're like, this place is magical. I mean, I just, this is a great community. I, this is awesome. Mm-hmm. That right there is priceless. It's absolutely priceless to me. And, you know, it goes back to our analogy that we talked about earlier, ironically. Nothing exciting in life and worth the darn comes easily. You got to be patient. The payoff, the payoff will come, but financially. But right now, man, you know, it, it's just so fulfilling to see what we've done and the education of what's so special about Western North Carolina and the way that we've, you know, named our routes, the Land of the Waterfalls, Carl, Carl Schink Loop, uh, the White Squirrel Loop. It intrigues people. I'm like, well, what is the white squirrel? Oh, it's our town mascot. You haven't seen a white squirrel? Go by the college. And by the end of the week, they'll be like, man, I saw a white squirrel. And <laughs> wow, that was really cool. And then they get to see the most viewed waterfall in the world or in the uh, United States. I'm sorry, Looking Glass Falls. They drive right by it, going to one of the stages. They get to actually participate where the first forestry school in America started. It's kind of cool to deliver all that to people and then walk away and go, wow, you know, this is really cool. And, and I'll tell you what's neat about the stage race. And as a whole, what we're talking about here is, you know, we're waiting for the big bang, man, it's coming. And what I saw the last two years is evidence of it. And the last two years I've asked every international racer that's come to the Pisgah stage race. All right. Welcome to North Carolina. Where'd you come before the United States? And you know what's funny? They've all looked at me and they went, what are you talking about? (laughs) And I went, well, come on, man. Where'd you go to Arizona, Colorado, California? You had to come somewhere in the United States before you chose old Western North Carolina. (laughs) And they go, nah, dude. And it's so funny, Jeff, because they don't know how to say Pisgah. There's a million different ways to say it. And they'll go, the Pisgah. (laughs) We hear about this Pisgah. (laughs) And I'm like, well, cool, dude. So internationally... Western North Carolina for mountain biking is on the map. Yeah, that's great. It's on the map, man. I mean, it is. They hear about it. They see pictures. I think all the videos that we've done and everybody else has done. I mean, again, we're on our 11th year. And if you're doing videos for five days, there's a lot of videos out there. I think people are getting the flavor of Pisgah going, huh, that looks cool. Yeah, well, I mean, and that's awesome to be able to share it with people from all over the world and, and really let them know what Western North Carolina has to offer. What does is, what is these events do for the local community? I imagine you use a lot of volunteers and, you know, their local businesses and everything. Like, what does it mean to, to the local mountain bike community and the, and the larger community there? Well, a lot of uh, a lot of the people I use nowadays are actual employees. So, you know, volunteerism. I mean, to do to do to operate at the level I want to, it's hard at volunteer level, uh, to be honest with you. So, we do use some volunteers, but most of it, I have my own staff that comes in just for the races. They have other jobs, of course, throughout the year. Most of the races are the weekend, but for the stage race, they've chose to take that week off and come out and work that week so that's nice that they yeah. that they do that but uh for the community you know i think coming in it, it, that's an interesting story in itself there because i've worked with the transylvania county where i live here in Brevard, north carolina and we've identified something called a shoulder season um, and that would be october or march and i well it used to be mm-hmm. changed changed a bit now so what's interesting is 
stage race started in October and now it's in April. April was called the shoulder season. Yeah. So what that meant here was there was not a lot of activity, um, not a lot of hotels being, you know, booked during those months. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we put a couple of events into that, that time, one of them being the Pisgah stage race. Well, the, what's cool about the Pisgah stage race is we have about 285 hotel rooms here. And with people coming in for the stage race, 200 people, and then family, you're pretty much filling up a lot of the town. Yeah. A lot of the rooms in the town. But, Jeff, it's for six nights. <laughs> yeah. That's the driver of the whole thing. So they're, they're, you know, they're super happy, you know, and people love to go around town and buy white squirrel memorabilia and looking glass falls memorabilia. And it's just a cool town. And the way we set the race up, it's not a, you know, you start it at, at the, when the light comes up and you come out, when the light goes down and the next day, you know, it's soldier style, <laughs> you just go, go, go. Yeah. The races are very hard, very hard, but they're only three to four hours. So you've got some time to trance around and check out downtown Brevard and Pisgah Forest and spend some money and, you know, let the people that actually live here go, well, these people are cool, you know, they're out downtown bopping around. Yeah. And it's great too, that there are local mountain bike advocates and volunteers that are, you know, helping to maintain those trails and to make sure that those trails stay open. Cause again, you know, they, of course locals get the benefit of having great trails, but they're also kind of doing it for these out of town visitors. And yeah, that seems really cool that, that that's all able to sort of work together. Your race promotion company, Blue Ridge Adventures, puts on a number of bike events throughout the year, including ORAM, which a lot of people have probably heard of as well. What's the key to putting on such successful events? Listening to your customer. Things change and customers' wants change. And, you know, we've talked a little bit about, I feel like I'm riding at an expert level. I've been doing it a long time. And some of the people I hang out with, what they desire a race to be financially doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's great to have, to have an event where, you know, who's the last man and woman standing <laughs> fi- financially, it makes zero sense. So it's, it's interesting. You know, again, I enjoy doing stage races myself. I enjoy doing hundred milers, 60 miles. I enjoy riding long rides, brutal stuff. Mm-hmm. But after Doing this for 21 years, I've also learned to put my ego aside and listen to the customer and go, you know, at one time, maybe the first 10 or 15 years of Blue Ridge Adventures, I really enjoyed putting people into the dirt. Mm -hmm. You know, hence O-Ram and Swank (laughs) are my oldest races. Those are hard. Yeah. Those are really, those are, those are definitely hard races, no doubt. But if you look at where Blue Ridge Adventures has trended, I've kind of changed my attitude a little bit. You know, and I get great satisfaction in providing a little bit easier races for the beginner and the intermediate crowds simply because I feel like I'm doing a cool thing and growing our sport. Yeah. I'm providing a platform to them for them to become like an expert rider like me and all my friends. Yeah. Well, over the years, what sort of trends have you seen in racing? I mean, I guess the big ones, the obvious ones to most people would be like, you know, 24 hour racing used to be big, no longer is. And we're seeing more enduro style events. What other trends are you seeing or or what do you see maybe in the future for racing? Stage races is huge, man. Stage races, I think first would be, it'd be a tie. I think stage races and gravel grinders. And I know that sounds weird. Most people would say, oh, gravel grinders. 
but I got my finger on stage racing for two reasons. One, I put one on. Two, I like to race around the world and do stage races. So I know all the stage races around the world. And that's where I'm coming from. When I first put the Pisgah stage race on, there were probably, I want to say, 45 stage races in the world. Today, 11 years later, there are over 150 stage races in the world. Wow. A lot of them are in Europe. A lot of them are in Africa. We only have three in the United States. However, when you look at the trend of what's going on, USA Cycling was out at the Breck Epic this year. USA Cycling is looking to adopt the stage race form. Breck Epic this year is a UCI race. Oh, wow. It's becoming, it is becoming more and more mainstream. And because I, I think people are realizing there's two types of stage races. There's the ones that go all day long that just kill you, that that's what people think because they see the Tour de France and they're like, there's no way I could do that. Then there's the ones that are in America and like what we're doing at the Pisgah Stage Race. We're going to let you get your feet wet for five days, seven days, whatever it may be, but we're not going to kill you. They're all in destination places and we want you to you know enjoy these places. So I think that's what the stage racing in America, that's the approach. Yeah. Is more of a family vacation, if you will. Come enjoy these great destination points. And while you're at it, throw in a mountain bike ride. <laughs> yeah. Well, it seems too, though, maybe there are some challenges or maybe it's just growing pains with stage racing. But like the Transylvania Epic, right, recently made a change going from seven days to five days, right? Yep. So are there are there some forces sort of at play there that that maybe make it challenging or, or are there headwinds or maybe is that just like an isolated case? I think that was a learning curve on their part. I think that they, they wanted to go seven days because, you know, Breck was seven days and mm -hmm. they, they wanted to match that. And what happened there is it's a, it's a matter of quality over quantity. And I've, I've done that race. Great race. But my, I was there the year, the last year it was seven. I think, I think uh, me and a couple of my buddies were strong forces in saying go to five mm -hmm. because it's quality, not quantity. At the end of those seven days, we were doing some of the, you know, 80% of the trails of the route was like we'd already been here before. <laughs> yeah. You know, I was like, I remember this from Tuesday. Oh, I remember this from Wednesday. Oh, we were here yesterday. Oh, well, there's a finish line. <laughs> it was like, man, you, you just can't, you can't. So there's, you know. But they have a formula just like Breckenridge and just like the Pisgah Stage Race, which is actually very unique for stage racing. You get to stay in one place the whole friggin' week. Yeah. Most of the stage races I do are linear. So you're getting your luggage up in the morning. You're putting it on a train or a bus. You're going over the you know several mountains to another town. Okay, where's the hotel? Where's my luggage? Okay, now, Mr. Branham, you're six flights up. There's no elevator, and you're like, holy cow. Yeah. It never ends. So, you know, here you just lay your stuff out in a room. You come home every night. Your stuff's there. There's advantages to having it in one place. Yeah. But you got to watch the quality of the trails, though, you know, and it goes back to Pisgah. Man, we're, we're you, you know this, Jeff. I mean, we're only just picking a handful of trails at the Pisgah Stage Race. There's so much more out there we're not touching. I'm just delivering the best. Right. Yeah. And it seems, I mean, people's time is limited too, you know, I mean, not everybody's got enough vacation to take, you know, I mean, for a lot of people it's 10 days to do the Transylvania Epic, you know, where you have to have, have travel time to get up there and then coming back. And so, yeah, I think there probably is a sweet spot in terms of, of people's time as well. 
Well, a seven-day stage race, it's pretty simple. You know, if you've got a Saturday, Sunday off, and the stage race is Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Thursday Saturday, the Sunday, you got to take the next Monday off. You're going into <laughs> yeah. two weeks. Yeah. Where, you know, if it's a five-day stage race, you're just taking a week off. Yeah, just a week. Yeah, huge advantage there. Yeah, that's that's true. So you mentioned gravel events, and those seem to be becoming more and more popular. What do you think the appeal is to that specifically? Is this is this something for mountain bikers? Like we always get that question too that people ask, like, is single tracks going to cover gravel? Like, and do you see it as part of mountain biking, or is it more of like a road biker type of thing? I think that for road bikers, I think the appeal is is getting off the paved roads due to the traffic. Mm-hmm. And I think that's about as far as it goes because mountain biking is pretty hard, or at least in my region here, you know, there's a big step up between gravel roads to even DuPont. Yeah. So I, I feel like it's more of a, a trending thing for mountain bikers that what they're going to see is they're going to get into a gravel bike and all of a sudden they're seizing, they're going to jump up and become a lot stronger and go, holy cow, that gravel bike made me strong. Mm-hmm. And they're going to scratch their head and go, I wonder what I could do on a road bike. <laughs> Yeah. You think it's going to go the other way. It's not going to be road bikers sort of using it as a gateway into mountain biking. I'm not seeing that where I live. I think in different areas, it would be different. You know, if, if I were in Florida, I, I might answer this differently. Right. But in, in Western North Carolina, with as steep as these hills are, that's not what I'm seeing here. I'm seeing more mountain bikers get enthused by that power output they're gaining from the gravel bikes. And then going, well, let me try the road. And, you know, they might end up going, man, it's just too unsafe. I don't feel safe on the road. I like the serenity of being in the woods. Mm-hmm. But that way well, they hadn't quite gotten there yet. They're just getting the road bikes and going, huh, let me just see how much, how strong I can get. <laughs> right. Yeah. Because there's no doubt the road bike will make you strong. And you can gain some miles pretty quick and recover a lot quicker if you're training. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Absolutely. Well, Todd, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate uh, all your your knowledge. And I've certainly learned a lot about trail building and stage racing. So thank you. Yeah, thanks for what you're doing, Jeff. This is great, man. Well, you can get more information about Long Cane Trails at longcanetrails.com. And also check out the event calendar at blueridgeadventures.net uh, to find out how you can sign up for the Pisgah Stage Race or some of the other awesome races that... Todd's group puts on in the Pisgah National Forest. And if you're enjoying the Single Tracks podcast, we'd love to have you rate us uh, wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, that's all we've got this week. We'll talk to you again next week. Peace. Peace.